So that's where we're headed. But today we're going to end the series that we've been looking at called Gospel Foundation. And in this series, we've been talking about um, five questions, or we've been working through five questions. And today we get to the last one. Um, who is God? We said that's theology. What has God done? Which is really Christology, what happened in Jesus. Who are we? Which is the ecclesiology. That's who the church is, the gathered and called. Um, what we are to do, we said, is missiology. That's moving out of mission. And then today we're going to be looking at how do we do it. And this, I would say, is pneumatology. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. So this is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, what we said about these, just briefly, we said, who is God? Well, we see God primarily in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this relationship. The Father, what the Father did, what God has done, is the Father sent the Son, right, to give up his life, to serve us and give up his life for us. Um, the Spirit empowered the Son to do that. Um, the Son served us, okay? So the Father sent the Son, the Spirit empowered us, the Son served us. And we said, who are we in light of those things? Well, in light of the Father sending the Son to reconcile us, that means make those relationships right, we're family, so church carries this very dangerous family language with it. That carries with it all the pain and emotions of earthly family that we bring into that. And yet it's there. It's that idea that our family is greater than our biological family. Um, the Spirit empowered the Son. And the Son um, gave, and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to us to be witnesses or missionaries. So every one of us is a missionary. We're not off the hook just because we don't live in you know, Ethiopia. We are missionaries wherever we find ourselves. It's our identity, say. And who are we in light of the Son coming and serving us? Well, the Son said, you should also do this. I'm your Lord and Master. Now you go and do likewise. Greatest among you will be servants. You should be a servant. So our identity is family. We are missionaries and we're servants. And then what are we to do? Well, in light of being family, we should love others. Especially those who don't deserve it. Because that's what families do. Or should do, I should say. Um, in light of the Spirit, empowering the Son and making us missionaries, we should also make disciples. To me, this is the number one place when we're talking about what we should be doing as Christians, that there's a breakdown. We're not learning to make disciples. Even those of us who try to do it sometimes do it very poorly because we try to do our disciple-making inside of classrooms and the church buildings. Disciple-making has to happen in the stuff of real life. And it's a long-time project. There is no way a pastor can be a disciple-maker for the church. It's impossible. Pastors can be a teacher. They can make disciples of a few people. Hopefully they are. They should be. But they cannot do it. It's the job of the church. We are to make disciples. And then the Son served us, which makes us servants. And so what should we do? Well, one of the things we looked at last week is we should be serving the least of these people. The people who are least likely to deserve it should be the ones that we should be serving. That's why Jesus talked about like the widows and the orphans and those in prison and those sick, those kinds of things. So today we're going to be asking, how do we do it? Let's read this great story in Acts 10. This is going to be our jumping off point for looking at this. And of course, this is after Jesus was resurrected that this story is taking place. This is when the, the church is beginning to get its identity, and then beginning to send out some of the disciples into other regions. And so they're encountering what this church thing looks like in different places. 
In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. Okay, I'm going to be stopping as we move through this because we're not going to spend a lot of time taking this text apart. So I want us to notice some things as we go along. This man is a, is a um, leader. Okay, he's a centurion. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers in the Italian cohort. He's a Roman occupying soldier. He is not Jewish and he's occupying parts of his uh, place in Israel. Okay, but this should connect our text we heard last week. This is an interesting thing about this man. He fears God. Not just any God, or not all the Roman gods, but he fears Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And he gives alms generously. He gives money, so he's not taking money, he's giving it, which is what most soldiers did. Take it. And he prays constantly to God, okay? So this gives you an idea of who this man is. Verse 3. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which we, he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left... He called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of, whom he, of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. So this Peter they're sending them to, this is the disciple Peter. This is the one who Jesus said, your, your name is going to be Rocky, Peter. That's not Simon anymore, you're going to be Rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Okay? And then Peter immediately said things that Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. So this is Peter, right? He's the one who said, Lord, I'll follow you to, the, to everything, even to death. And he chops off the ear of a man when they come to arrest Jesus. But then he denies him three times. I never knew that man. And he calls down curses on himself, right? The same Peter that Jesus met by the shore and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I do, Lord. He said, then go feed my sheep. Three times he reinstated him. So now this is Peter, Okay. At noon the next day, as they were on their journey, this is verse 9, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. That's, that's not an odd thing, by the way, in the Middle East. There's still a lot of roofs that get used as a patio kind of place to be cool. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while he, it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Okay, so what you have to understand right here is that what Peter is saying is a vision of all kinds of animals that the Old Testament says the Jewish people, if they're going to be God's people, should not eat. Okay, so that's what he's seeing in this vision. Verse 13. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again, a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. 
Three times, again, not a coincidence. You think Peter remembers threes? <laughs> three times in the night Jesus, three times Jesus reinstated him, and now he's having this vision, and three times God says, get up, kill, and eat. Don't call anything unclean that God's made clean, and then it's taken away. Okay? Happens three times. Poor Peter. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, Suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Keep in mind that seeing a Roman soldier at your gate in those days was not a, usually a good thing, especially for one of the followers of Jesus. Verse 21. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day, he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. They followed him the following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him, and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with them, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? So you, you have to understand the picture here. Paul just walked into a house that he would normally not want to go into for a few reasons. This man is a soldier, a centurion, and it's a Gentile home. Okay, It's not a Jewish home. And he is, he's now making the connection between this vision that God gave him and what's now happening, and how the Holy Spirit is directing him. And he walks in this house, and there's all these people gathered, and they're all standing around going, okay, we're ready. Go ahead. <laughs> right? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, this is verse 30, at three o'clock I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon and Tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come to me. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And I, want to, I would like to keep reading, but I'm going to skip forward just a little bit in the story, because um, what Peter does is he begins to tell them all about Jesus. He just tells them the story. And then in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one example of how we have to resist putting little um, programs into everyone's life of discipleship. Because this was not Peter's plan. Okay, this was not his agenda. This was God's plan and God's agenda. And God had to make sure that Peter would at least be somewhat open to what God was going to do. And just to make it very clear, after they heard about Jesus, in case there was any resistance to them being baptized, because usually people are baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit, just in case God just pours out the Holy Spirit on these unclean, and I use that spiritually, unclean people, the Holy God sends His Spirit into them. And then the disciples are going, well, I guess if God gave them the Holy Spirit, we could baptize them in water after all, right? And that's, how, that's my interpretation of how they must have experienced that. They were astounded. They were surprised, right? So how do we do it? Is a question we're asking. How do we serve? How do we make disciples? How do we love others as family? Well, we don't do it by coming up with amazing programs and plans We don't do it by just being so well-trained in Scripture that we've got a defense and an answer for every question anyone could ever get. That's one of the things I often find Christians are so resistant to talk to people about their faith because they say, I just don't have the answers. Well, can I just tell you, I don't have the answers. I've never met a pastor or professor or teacher who has all the answers. If you meet someone who says they have all the answers, run the other way. Okay? They, They don't know how the Holy Spirit works if they think they got it all figured out. We do our best. We study, we train, we learn, we grow. We look for answers. We wrestle with questions. But don't let that keep us from being willing to do and go where the Holy Spirit wants to take us and where the Holy Spirit wants to do. So I have to admit, okay, I confess I'm kind of extreme in this way. So like with uh, Purpose Driven Church, anyone remember this book? Um, I think there's some really good things about it. But the problem was, all these churches began taking this book, Purpose Driven Church, which is done by a mega church down in California, and saying, we're going to take this whole thing and church in a box, and just boom, put it on this place in, you know, middle of Iowa. And boom, over here, and we're all going to be purpose driven. And immediately there began to be a little resistance because people said, purpose we're okay with, but the whole driven thing we have a little bit of problem with. And what it really was, was it was just a very um, intense program of trying to get people to jump through kind of hoops. They even had classes, 101, 201, 301, 401, for discipleship. Again, I'm not saying the whole model is bad. There's been a lot of amazing things happening about it. Purpose Driven Life came out later and was a big hit. And a lot of churches used that program. And I know some people were really helped by it. I tend to really resist all those things because... <sighs> Discipleship, okay, being a part of a church, it's not something that we can artificially create. It happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the gospel should look the same. But because every context is different, because downtown Stanwood is not downtown Marysville, is not downtown Seattle, okay, every church should reflect the place where they live. The gospel stays the same. 
But the culture changes. If I'm going to start a church in Senegal, it better not look like this. If I get up and lead with my guitar in Senegal, no one's going to come. We were talking about pianos earlier. Well, in some places in the world, you grab a guitar or a piano and they won't come. They want a drum. So the church, the, the way the church looks, the community looks, is going to look different. But the program is going to stay the same. So how do we do it? We cannot do it unless we rely on the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. I had this great conversation with some of the pastors in Stanwood recently. We get together for lunch. We try to do once a month. We get like maybe every other month. And um, pastors from all these different denominations in Stanwood and Camino. Great group of guys. And we talk about this stuff. And there was a conversation recently when we were talking about some of the programs and different things that were going on. And there was just this moment where a bunch of us were reflecting and saying, some pastors from larger churches too were saying, you know, sometimes I just wonder if simple wouldn't be better. If it wouldn't be best just to get back to Sunday morning worship, doing some you know, programs for kids, and then um, doing some like small group discipleship type stuff. It's interesting that I've heard that from many pastors of very large churches who they, they get so many programs and a bunch of different things going. Pretty soon they look at it and they go, is this really the church? What if we put our energy back into some of the basics and the simple things? So how do we do it? How do we love others? We've talked about this a little bit last week. First of all, we have to be willing to accept God's love. And all of us go, okay, yeah, I've said a prayer. I've, made, I've been baptized. I've made a statement of faith maybe multiple times. If I've gone through membership a lot of times, I've done those things. But it's not that easy because accepting God's love means that we also have to be willing to confess how broken and sinful we are so that then we can accept how much God really loves us so then we can love other people who are broken and sinful. We talked about this some last week where I said if the, 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 where the rubber meets the road on this is are we able to love people who are truly undeserving of it? That's why Jesus said, I think, love your enemies. He wanted to push this. He wanted us to understand that we were God's enemies. And God loved us. The Holy Spirit acts first. So that when we are able to accept Jesus' love, then we go, man, even that act of saying yes to God, God started it first. I mean, really, God began that issue. I mean, we all think about our stories. You can go along and say, oh, that was probably a coincidence. That was probably a coincidence. That was probably a coincidence. But when I hear Christians tell their stories, they look back on the story and they go, oh, that was God. That was God. That was God. Right? And we see how the Holy Spirit acted first so that we can talk about being completely dead and unable to respond. I had a professor in college. He did this acting out thing. And I'm going to see him a couple weeks at Whitworth Institute of Ministry. He's going to be teaching again. I guarantee you he will do this. I'll try to record it and show you if he does. But he does this thing where he talks about um, a person being dead to sin. Right? And how the Holy Spirit kind of comes along and grabs a person and shakes them and slaps them. And says, wake up, wake up, wake up. God loves you. You know, and then them, you kind of wake up and go, oh. And then you can respond to it. But it takes the act and the work of the Holy Spirit to begin that process. How do we love others? First, we have to be able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to accept God's love. Which also means we have to be able to forgive ourselves. 
That sometimes is a little bit harder than just saying, I get God forgives me, but being willing to forgive ourselves. How do we witness to Jesus? How do we make disciples? That's one of the things we're supposed to do. Well, this too is the work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Just as the Gentiles in the story had the Holy Spirit poured out on them, the, the scriptures teach us that whenever we make that confession to God that we are sinful, we want to follow Jesus, and then we, we um, respond in baptism, that the Holy Spirit is given to us to dwell or to live in us. So then, how do we witness to Jesus? Well, our life then is carrying the Holy Spirit with us. The acts of love that we do, the acts of grace that we do, the acts of kindness we do, sometimes in those really amazing situations, it's the words we say as well. So that even then we'll we'll look back sometimes and go, I can't believe I said that. That was the Holy Spirit working in me to say that. Or someone will come to you later and say, you have no idea how much it meant to me when you said, and you're going, did I say that? Because the Holy Spirit was speaking through you. To say what that person needed to hear. Because you're open to that. You're, the Holy Spirit is with you. I love this story we read. Because Peter does almost nothing. Did you notice that? And actually this happened the first time. When Peter shared the gospel. And a bunch of people believed in Jerusalem. Because this is the guy remember. Who was running away from Jesus. That's why the disciples kept all those stories in the Bible. About how bad Peter was. And all the crazy things Peter did. Because they wanted us to see how amazing God is. And how he uses Peter. So in this story, Peter doesn't do anything. He's sitting on the roof going, man, I'm hungry. And then God goes, okay, I'm going to give you a vision. And he gives Peter a vision, right? And the vision's done and Peter's going, oh, I should probably figure out what this means. Boy, this is really disturbing. God gave it to me, but I don't know. And on the door, there's this knock, 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 knock. Hey, Peter in there? <laughs> right? So then God says, Peter, you need to go with these guys. Okay, Lord. So he lets them come stay for the night. And then he goes with them. And then he, I'm sure he's thinking along the way. He's thinking, man, how am I going to tell them about Jesus? So obviously God wants me to share the story with them. But they're going to invite me into their home. They're going to want me to eat with them. What are my good you know, Jewish brothers and sisters going to think if I do this? You know, and he's wrestling with the vision. You know, all this whole thing. He walks in and the whole place is filled with people just going, can you tell us what you know? God wants you to tell us something, right? And then all he has to do is just tell his story and tell the story of Jesus. And then he's probably sitting there. I imagine because, you know, I preach once in a while. I imagine in his head as he's saying this, he's thinking, what am I going to do if they all accept Jesus? Should I baptize them? I mean, they're Gentiles. We haven't figured this out yet. And so while he's doing that, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes on them, just like it did, he, the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost, and they're speaking in tongues. I mean, God can't make it any more clear. And then Peter's like, okay, God, I guess I'll baptize them too then. I mean, he does almost nothing, but just simply respond to what God is doing. We make it so complicated. Oh, how do I make disciples? How do I witness to Jesus? Most of the time, you simply have to be willing to respond to how the Holy Spirit's working. You pay attention to the big neon signs that God's putting in front of you. Right? So many of the things we want to dismiss as coincidences simply aren't. 
their God at work. Peter's not fulfilling the uh, First Church of Jerusalem's evangelism strategy. Their purpose-driven Samaria strategy, right? This is God at work. He's doing it. How do we serve the least of these? That's the third one we talked about. How do we serve those who really are hard to love and serve? This one for me is impossible unless we allow our heart to be broken for the same things that breaks God's heart. I've told you before that Mother Teresa, someone who the world has really come to look at as sort of the epitome of a woman who not only did what Jesus asked, but just showed love and kindness on a scale that, I mean, the whole world noticed, but she was just serving orphans. And she had a similar prayer that she said every day. I don't have it written down right now. You could Google it and look it up. But it was written on her wall, even, at the orphanage in Calcutta. And it had to do with this idea, God, that you would give me your heart for these people around me, that you would break my heart. This is, I believe, one of the most dangerous prayers that we can pray as a Christian. If you're sitting there thinking, how do I know who I should serve? How do I know who I should love? Start praying this prayer every day and see what happens. God, give, or prayer, make it your own words. You know, I tend to pray, God, give me your heart for people. Just simple for me. That's how I like to pray it. Every once in a while, like when we were starting Tidelands, I have people who will say to me, um, or it'll come back through somebody else and they'll say, Brandon has a lot of patience. You know, I heard, this, I heard people saying this to me when I was coaching this year, and I heard people saying that to me when I was leading our discernment team through this process of starting the church, and after he had started. And I, I can tell you, every time I hear that, most of the time I laugh out loud. But if I'm not laughing out loud, my insides are laughing like crazy. Because if you ask me to list out all the things that I see of who I am, patience is not on that list. Anywhere on that list. So when people say I'm patient, they are not seeing me at all. What they're seeing is Jesus in me. They're seeing the Holy Spirit working through me. This is the same for all of you. These are the things that God wants to build into you. If you begin praying, God, give me your heart for people then suddenly you begin to have different kinds of interactions with people. And it's not because you're just you're so strong. You said, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a patient person. I mean, you can work on that, but I don't have enough patience to work on patience. And God has to do that work in me, right? It's that simple. We don't need to make it overly complicated. We, this is the end of um, what we're doing in a series and... And I hope that it's given a little bit of framework for you. And if not, that's okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to share with you some other time too. But um, the things that we are to do, the people that we are to be, um, God gives us a spirit to accomplish that. It's not just something that we have to figure out on our own, that we have to do on our own strength. I hope that's encouraging. It should be encouraging. It should be exciting. And it should be also encouraging to know that God does this through broken, sinful people, not through perfect, holy people. That's how God's always worked. That's how God desires to work. In light of that, we're going to move into um, time of having the Lord's Supper here. So I'm going to move some stuff out of the way. Someone would like to let the kids know. Christina. Christina.